recently in our culture, especially with the new comic book movies, this is a theme that is very often in these movies. You have a hero, and the, the normal story of this hero is that they're just always a hero. They're always doing right and good. But lately it seems like they've rewritten these stories a little bit so that they focus on the fault of this hero. They focus on the times that they go through where they fail. You watch the Spider, the most recent, not the one that just came out, but the, the, of the trilogy Spider-Man, the last one, Spider-Man deals with pride and selfishness and, and his suit turns a dark color because he's just filled with rottenness inside. And so we have our hero who fails. In the last Batman movie, he's old and he's not willing or able to fight anymore and it just looks looks like the hero is going to fail and even when they get the whole group of them together in the avengers they just can't fight together right they can't get along they end up fighting against each other and and for a long time in that movie it seems like the heroes are going to fail now a little spoiler alert for you um they actually don't fail in those movies Okay? When, when you make a movie, it's exciting when you see somebody fall a little bit, but then it, you just watch them rise and, and you know, get over all their obstacles and their hurdles. But real life isn't always that easy, right? There are times that we have heroes, people we look up to, people that we love, people that we have learned from, and they fail. And, and sometimes their failures, it's, they're just, they're big. I mean, that's not just something you just oh, let's just work together and we'll just make it all better. Sometimes the failures are serious failures. And I know that if you've been living the Christian life for a while, you have experienced this with some of your leaders. You have seen leaders, people you looked, at, looked up to, people you learned from, people you loved, and they have failed you. Uh, just recently, over the past year, there's been this terrible story that have come out of a big church in Chicago about a pastor who, I mean, honestly, all over North America, people look up to him. People saw him as their hero, and he's caught um, in infidelity with a 16-year-old girl. Just devastating to the family, devastating to the church, devastating to those people that looked up to him. And I think it's wise for us to ask this question sometimes. What will I do when my hero fails? What do I do when my leaders fail? And I believe there is a right answer. I believe when we see human heroes fail, it reminds us that everyone fails. That we're all flesh. That on this earth today, there is no human being that will not fail you. And it reminds us of that. I think that if we handle it properly, having a hero fail will point us to the one true hero that will never fail us. Jesus Christ, he's the true hero. And we are wrong if what we're doing in our lives is, is following men without ultimately following Christ. And so when that, hero, that man fails you, you always have Christ. And, and it isn't necessarily a bad thing when you have people around you fail if it pushes you towards following Christ closer. And finally, I think that we can learn the lessons and we can allow those failures to help shape us to drive us to Christ, to help learn pitfalls and, and learn how all of us are flesh and we all need to be on guard all the time. And so what I want to look at tonight is a time when I believe the Apostle Paul fails. Now his failure isn't this massive infidelity or anything like that. It, it's a small failure. It's something that we all experience all the time. But I mean, this is the Apostle Paul. 
And if you've been following the story with us, you know that the Apostle Paul is an impressive Christian. He is a guy who's willing, not just willing, not just, you know, hey, I'll, I'll give it all for Christ. He does. Day in and day out, he is sacrificing everything for Christ. He's laid everything aside. He's counted it all as dung so that he could win Christ. And he's been beaten, and he's been tortured, and, he, and he's been hungry, and he's gone without physical comfort, and he's gone through so much hatred and persecution because he loves Christ so much that he's willing to suffer for him. And today I believe we're going to see this great Christian, and he is probably the greatest Christian that's lived. We're going to see this man fail. Small failure, yes, but he fails. And so what do we do when our heroes fail? Let's pray and then we'll get in the message. Father, we love you. Lord, I thank you that you never fail us. And Lord, I, I know that this world um, looks on Christianity sometimes with disgust because they see so much hypocrisy, they see so much failure. And Lord, we do understand that as believers, we are right with you, we're justified, you've made us righteous, but Lord, this side of heaven, we're still struggling with our flesh. And every person on this earth fails at times. We sin. We break your law. And so God, I pray you'd help us with this today. I pray as we look at the Apostle Paul in his life, that you would teach us lessons there. Lord, allow the Holy Spirit to teach our hearts. Help me to not say anything that I shouldn't say. And to, uh, I just pray, Lord, that this message will bring you glory. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 23. We have been following Paul's ministry for a while. I'm not going to go through the whole story once again, but he's arrived in Jerusalem. He's given his account to the church about all of his missionary journeys. And then he's in the temple. And while he's in the temple, he's taken by the Jews, he's taken out of the temple, he's beaten almost to death, he's just about to be killed when the Roman soldiers save him, and they bring him up to this castle of Antonio, or Fort Antonio. And while he's going up the steps, he says, hey, let, let me talk to the people. And so he turns around and he talks to this Jewish mob that just tried to kill him and gives them his personal testimony. This is how I came to know Christ, the Damascus Road experience. And he's cut short when he says, and Jesus sent me to the Gentiles. And so then th this Claudius Lysias, the chief captain, the Roman that's in charge here, he still doesn't know what Paul has done. And so he decides he's going to flog him. He's going to uh, whip him. But he can't, he finds out that Paul is a Roman. And so he can't whip a Roman. And so the next idea that Claudius Lysias has to try and find out what Paul has done and why all these Jews are so angry at him is that he says, well, what I'll do is I'll take the Sanhedrin and I'll put Paul in front of the Sanhedrin and they can try him. Okay, they can interrogate him. They can find out for me what he's done. And I'll just kind of listen into this process. And so we'll start our reading in Acts chapter 22, verse 30, and we'll be in chapter 23 for the message. It says, On the morrow, because he, Claudius Lysias, would have known the certainty whereof he was accused of the Jews, he loosed him from his bands and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. And Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And we just looked last week at the power of this statement, that Paul can stand up and he can stand boldly and he can look these men in the eye and earnestly behold them just because he can honestly say, listen, 
I've lived in good conscience before God until this day. I have done everything that I can do to do what I believe God wanted me to do in my life. Now, that, for a while, I was, you know, I was killing Christians. Now you know I'm a believer. And so he's saying, hey, this has been my life, but I'm trying to stand before you and honestly say, I can, I've tried to follow what God wanted me to do. And there's a lot of power in that. He goes on in verse 2. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded them that stood by to smite him on the mouth. And so the high priest hears that Paul is saying, I've lived in good conscience, and he understands what he's saying. Because what Paul is saying is, I am a Jew, and now I believe that Christ is the Jewish Messiah, and so I am trying to follow my God still, my conscience is still clear, I'm trying to follow Christ who is God. And, and what, he's trying, what he's doing is he's standing in front of all the Jewish religious leaders that put Christ to death, saying that Christ is God and I'm, and I'm living for Him. This is, I mean, this is bold. It, it's a slap in the face to the Sanhedrin. Okay? The God that you say you worship, He's the one that I'm actually worshiping. He is Christ and I'm on trial for Him today. And, and so the high priest is angry. It, it certainly angers him. And so he commands Paul to be smacked on the mouth. Now here's Paul's response. Then Paul said unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall. For thou sittest to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law. And this is, I mean, from a fleshly perspective, I've got to say, I love his response. I love how he just nails the guy. Thou whited wall. Do you know what he's making reference to? He's making reference to, probably in Ezekiel chapter 13, Ezekiel describes walls, and he's, he's uh, condemning the false prophets of Israel, and he's saying, listen, this is what you're doing. You're taking these walls that are completely broken down. They're falling over. The next storm that comes, they're going to crash, and then you're putting a little paint on them. You're whitewashing them. You're making them look pretty on the outside. What a foolish thing. That is not going to keep them up. Okay? He's saying that these walls are going to fall. You're a whited wall. You've got nothing going on, no strength. You just kind of look pretty on the outside. It's the same kind of thing that Jesus said to them when he said, you're, you're a, a whitewashed tomb. And, and Jesus' picture there was the same kind of thing. On the outside, you make this tomb all beautiful. You paint it up. It's pretty. Everybody walks by and say, oh, what a beautiful tomb. And if you were to go inside, you couldn't stand the smell because it stinks so much of rotten flesh. And this is the picture of, of this hypocrite. And so he says, you whited wall. And he says, God shall smite thee. <laughs> now, I mean, that's, that's pretty bold to say too. Paul wasn't wrong. Soon after this, a few years after this, uh, this high priest, Ananias, was killed by some Jew, Jewish freedom fighters. And so soon after he was killed, this is a little bit prophetic, but I'm just not sure Paul said it in like a very prophetic, like, God shall smite thee, that whited wall. I don't see him saying like that. I think, I think Paul reacted in anger. And I, I, honestly, if I was there, I'm clapping for Paul. But I know what he did here was wrong. All right? He reacts in anger. God shall smite thee, that whited wall. Get the picture? He's angry that he got hit. 
And then he says, you're judging me after the law, but you're smiting me contrary to the law. This doesn't make any sense that you would hit me. I am a, a, Jew, a Pharisee, a Jew, and I'm uncondemned. And, and you know what? We have the idea like, hey, you're innocent until proven guilty. That's how their system worked as well. You were innocent until proven guilty. And so now he's, he's the high priest, the supposed highest judge of Judaism, is hitting a guy who hasn't done anything wrong, or at least hasn't been condemned of it yet. Go on in verse 4. And they that stood by said, Revilest thou God's high priest? And we get another picture of Paul's anger here because the word revile is used rarely in Scripture and it's used when the the Pharisees confront Jesus and their attitude toward Jesus is that they revile him. It was kind of like a a, a violent verbal attack. And they're saying, are you going to revile, are you going to violently verbally attack the high priest? Really, Paul? Is that, is that how you're going to play this? Then Paul said in verse 5, I wist not, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. And verse 5, at first glance, would be very difficult to understand. I wist not that he was the high priest. Well, Paul, I mean, really, how do you not know who the high priest is? You're a Jew. You're a Pharisee among Pharisees. You used to speak to the high priest all the time. Now, granted, this is a different high priest. This is a different man. He's fairly new to the role. Okay? Ananias has not been a high priest for long. But, I mean, you think about the garments they wore. You think about the respect he would be given at this council. He would have been the, the head guy, the center guy. You would imagine that he would know who was the high priest. The other part about that is when... Paul was smitten. He said, you're judging me contrary to the law. And and so he recognized this high priest as the guy who was the judge, ultimately. And how this Sanhedrin worked is you had 70 members, and they would all provide input, and the high priest, the the, the 71st member, the number one guy, would make the decision. He had veto authority over the whole thing. So it wasn't a democracy. The high priest was ahead of them. And, and so he, it seems like he recognized who the high priest was in, in verse 3. And then he, in verse 5, he says, um, I didn't know who you were. Most likely this is because he was being sarcastic. I think he was just using sarcasm. I think he was saying, I can't imagine that somebody would act like that would be our high priest. He's not acting like the high priest, so how could I think that he was the high priest? Now, some commentators say, well, yeah, but Paul had bad eyesight. And we know that's probably true. In, in the book of Galatians, he, he tells them that, hey, listen, I wrote with very big letters. Not just I wrote a really long letter. I wrote with big letters by my own hand. Okay? He probably wrote really big because he couldn't see well. And then another time in Galatians, he says, you would have plucked your eyes out and given them to me if possible. And there's probably a reference to the fact that he had bad eyesight. So it's possible that Paul's eyesight wasn't great. He didn't see. But it seems to me more likely that he was being sarcastic. But the, the point is, nothing on my, in my message will hinge on whether he knew or not, it didn't know. Because he was either sinning willfully, or he was sinning in ignorance. But either way, Paul sees it as sinning. Because the next part of the verse, he says, For it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of the people. And so instead of responding like I might have, he says, you know, I get, are you going to speak that way to your high priest? And I'd say, yeah, I am. Absolutely I'm going to speak that way because look at this guy. He doesn't continue to respond that way. See, he does have this surge of anger at first. It's part of Paul's previous 
life. I mean, he used to be angry, breathing out threatenings and slaughter. Paul was an angry guy before he got saved. And some of that comes back. But he doesn't continue. He says, listen, I didn't know he was the high priest. Maybe he's joking, but he says, the Bible does say in Exodus 22, I shouldn't speak evil of the high priest, of the ruler of thy people. And so I shouldn't have done what I did. Okay? He's, he's saying, listen, I, I messed up. Okay? I did wrong. I shouldn't have done that. Verse 6. But when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, of the hope of the resurrection of the dead, I am called in question. And Paul says this, and, and essentially what he's done there is he's reached into his pocket, pulled out a grenade, pulled the pin, thrown it into the crowd, and then watched it explode. Because that, that's, that's what this statement does. He says he's a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Now, we understand rivalry a little bit, right? We have sports teams that, that they're rivals. Miles the other day went into the store with Tara to go get a backpack. And I don't watch hockey often. I used to when I was a kid, and I love hockey, but I don't watch it often. But Toronto Maple Leafs have always been my favorite team. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I mean hey, I, I'm Canadian. They're the closest Canadian team to us. I, I've always loved them. Best year was 93, and, and the only thing I don't like about Wayne Gretzky is what happened. Anyways, so terrible series. High stick, clear. But that's, that's not the point. The point is, somehow Miles knows that the Toronto Maple Leafs are the team that he should cheer for because that's the team his dad cheers for. And so his dad is a Toronto Maple Leafs. And so he goes to get his backpack, and he is buying a Toronto Maple Leafs backpack. He's sure of it. So he goes, he picks it out. He goes up to the counter. He puts the backpack on the counter. And the lady says to him, hey, I think you got the wrong one. <laughs> Miles says, like, looks at her like, are you crazy? And, and, and Tara's telling me, she's like, this lady was pushing it. She was like, no, you got the wrong one. It should be white and red. You, you want the white and red one. And so as he's leaving the store, she's saying, okay, well, next time you come back, you need to get the red and white one. And Miles, Miles is like kind of not sure of himself at this point. He looks up at Tara and says, mommy, is this a Toronto Maple Leafs bag? He says, yes, and he says, oh, okay. He knew he should be cheering for the Toronto Maple Leafs. All right? And there is that rivalry there between the Leafs and the Wings. I know that. The Leafs and the Habs. My dad was a Habs fan. It's terrible. But we do not understand the rivalry between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It was at a whole different level. Okay? The, the Sadducees, they did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in, in spirits or angels or demons, or, or at least there was a certain aspect of that that they didn't believe in. And so they, were, they would be considered more the, the liberals of the day. This is the Sadducees. Okay? They were very uh, much a political party. And so Paul here says, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, and so I'm a Pharisee through and through. And it's of the hope of the resurrection of the dead I am called in question. And so you have the liberals on this, that, that make up the majority of the Sanhedrin that here, he doesn't believe in the resurrection. And you have the Pharisees who are the conservatives. Okay, they were like the fundamentalists. And they're the ones that say, no, there is a resurrection. There is angels. There is demons. They were adamant about those things. And so they say, listen, he's a Pharisee and he, and he believes in the resurrection. He, I mean, we need to support this guy. And so Paul has tossed this grenade, and in verse 7, it finally goes off. And when he had so said, there arose dissension, this is an uprising, between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, 
and the multitude was divided. And now instead of looking at Paul and caring what Paul is saying, they're angry at each other. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. And there arose a great cry. And the scribes that were of the Pharisees' part arose and strove. And the word strove is they fought vehemently. I mean, they fought with passion, saying, We find no evil in this man, but, listen to how they say it, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Okay, now he's already told them that it was Jesus that appeared to them. Jesus is God. And so they know that it wasn't a spirit or an angel. They know it was Jesus, but they say, listen, listen, Sadducees who don't believe in spirits and angels. Maybe a spirit or angel appeared to him. And that's why he's teaching us about the resurrection. And so we're not going to condemn him. And it's just, it's almost comical to see these two groups that are supposed to be the spiritual leaders over all of Judaism. Every Jew in the world looked to these 70 men as their examples. And now he says one thing about the resurrection, and they're just fighting, and they hate each other, and they're going at each other's necks. And in verse 10 it says, And when there arose great dissension, the chief captain, this is Claudius Lysias, fearing lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces of them, commanded the soldiers to go down, and to take him by force from among them and bring him into the castle. They're at the point where they're so angry that they're literally tearing Paul apart or trying to tear him apart. You know, other time that this word uh, is used about tearing Paul apart, the word pulling him in pieces, is when the, the Gadarene demoniac is ripping his chains off. They're ripping him in pieces. That's what they're saying. And once again, Paul is saved by the Romans. And I've got to say, as I, I think about this story, part of me feels bad for Claudius Lysias. He, he's already tried to let Paul to speak to the mob. They wouldn't let him finish. And so he hears a little bit. And then he tries to whip him, and he can't do that because he's a Roman. And now he thinks, okay, I'll get all these mature, smart, you know, Jewish men who will certainly speak calmly to Paul and get the information I need. And after a couple verses, a couple words... Paul has them at each other's throats, and now they're trying to tear Paul apart again. This, so far, this has not been going well for Claudius Lysias. But I want to draw our attention tonight back to Paul's actions. Because when we look at the book of Acts, and we look at all of the times that Paul addressed people, this is the only time that I could find where he is not able to present the gospel. Every other time, Paul gets a chance to stand in front of them. He gets to say something about Jesus. He gets to tell them that Jesus died. He gets to tell them about Jesus' resurrection, not just mention the word resurrection. And at this point, it's kind of sad that Paul doesn't get to stand in front of all these men and say, listen, I'm who I am because of Jesus. Now, they knew that already. I understand that. They, I believe by now they knew Paul's message and this was just a formality. This was just them trying to take another chance to condemn him. That was their plan here. But everywhere else, Paul gets to share the gospel. And so I believe here that in, in Acts chapter 23, at the start of the chapter, when Paul gets angry, I think he kind of blew it a little bit. I think we see Paul fail. And I've got to tell you, for myself, it's encouraging. 
it's encouraging to see that a great man like Paul has times, moments of weakness, where he fails, where he sins. And so, what I want to do is, is, is try to apply this text to our lives. Um, and the first ap- point of application is very simple. We all fail. We all fail. Paul's reaction here confirms his humanity. Uh, We read in the Bible so much that is commendable about Paul. He is probably the hero of just about every Christian. And, and, And in a sense, he ought to be. We can follow him as he followed Christ. But I don't know if you've ever read Romans chapter 7 before and thought, Paul, you don't even know what you're talking about at that point. Romans chapter 7 verse 19, he says, For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. The good things that I want to do, I don't do those things. And the things that I know are bad, that's what I end up doing. And it seems like for the first time we see Paul's life and we go, yeah, he kind of did understand it a little bit. Maybe there was a time where the thing that he knew he should do, he didn't do. And the thing that he wanted to not do, that, that's what he ended up doing. Paul actually knew better because when we read 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul had already wrote, written this letter a, a while back, about 10 years ago. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 12 says that we labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. It doesn't seem like that's what Paul did here, right? Paul was reviled and he reviled back again. He didn't bless. When he was persecuted, he didn't just suffer it, he got angry about it. And so Paul knew better. But I believe that as we look at this story and we hear about Paul and him saying that he is the chief of sinners and all those things, and and we see Paul's love and compassion for the lost, it makes a little bit more sense when we see him fail. Right? Because we see how he can empathize with them. And it is good for us to know that we all fail. It's good for us to remember that there is no such thing as a Christian that doesn't fail, especially you and I. Because when we do that, hopefully it allow us to look at other people and say, listen, I fail, they fail, we all fail. Somehow, for some reason, God loves us in spite of our failures. For some reason, God has chosen to love sinners, sinful people. And so, just because you're a failure, do you know that God doesn't love you more now than he did when he died for you? He doesn't love you more now than he did when you were in the state that he died for you? When you're at your worst, his love for you is not, it's not greater. It's not like as you, you know, try and obey his commandments, he's just more and more impressed with you and, and is just falling deeper in this love. His love is a choice that he made, and he made that choice to love sinful people. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And, and the death of Christ is the ultimate example of his love. It's the ultimate manifestation of his love. And so he loved you at your worst, and he loved everybody you know at their worst. And we have a very hard time doing that, don't we? And so seeing that we all fail, I think, helps us to understand why Paul could go, you know what, he failed, and he could love other people that failed too. It also reminds us that we all need the gospel daily. If Paul fails and we fail, then it makes sense that we do need the gospel. But what we do instead of sometimes looking toward the gospel and say, yes, I'm a failure, I'm under the cross, and it's wonderful that Jesus saved me, we get to the point where we go, okay, yeah, I I was saved, and now I'm moving on from there, and 
Now I'm just going to live this life that is just so wonderful and pleasing to God. And when we do sin, it's like, oh man, I've got I to gotta get some drywall compound and put it on that, that little hole because I don't want anybody to see that I've failed that once or twice since I was saved. I've just got to cover that little hole up. And do you know what that's called? It's called hypocrisy. <laughs> With the youth group on Friday night, I told them, this is going to be a hard message. It, it's convicting for me. It's going to be, con- I, I hope. It'll be convicting for you. And our whole message was on hypocrisy. Why is it convicting? Because it's so prevalent. Because we all feel this need to dress ourselves up a little bit, don't we? Like, hey, I've got to cover up who I am just a little bit so I'm accepted by the church and, and more acceptable to Jesus. And it is just so ridiculous. Jesus died just as much for the most sinful person that you know as he did for the most religious person you know. The difference is, People that are sinful often recognize their need for a Savior. And people that are religious often think they're okay. Self-deception is the worst deception. And if you have deceived yourself into thinking you don't need Christ, or if you're a believer already and you've deceived yourself into thinking that you're just someone super special now, I'm telling you, self-deception is the worst deception. And, and, and from that point of, I am okay, you will never grow. You can't. Because you have just said you don't need the gospel, and it is the gospel that we grow by. And so we all need the gospel daily. We all fail. Number two, equally simple, Jesus never fails. Right? We all fail. We know it. Jesus never fails. And this is important for two reasons. First of all, he's our example. Okay? And so when we look at how we ought to be living our lives, we can't place any person as a perfect example for us, but we can look to the life of Jesus. And it's amazing how God providentially had this story and how Luke worded this story so close to how John would word his gospel a number of years later. If you look at John, John chapter 18, you've probably all seen the WWJD bracelets, right? What would Jesus do? And, and so you're supposed to be living your life and every decision you make, you say, what would Jesus do in this situation? I'm going to do that. Well, Paul could very easily look to the Gospel of John, not yet, because it wasn't written yet, but, I mean, the story here, and he could find out what Jesus would do in this situation. John 18, verse 22, says, When he had thus spoken, this is Jesus, so Jesus just spoke to them, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? Does that sound familiar? Verse 23, Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou me? That's a lot different, isn't it? That sounds like a person that is in complete control of their anger. It's not, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall. It's, if I have done something wrong, tell me what it is. But if not, why are you hitting me? So controlled. I mean, Jesus is impressive, isn't he? He's a pretty cool example. First uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 23, it says, Who, speaking of Jesus, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. And what that's just saying is, he was in God's hands. And it did not matter what people did to him. He was going to react the way he was supposed to react because his judge was God. And, and, and our judge is God. And so we ought to react the way God wants us to react because it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. 
Jesus never fails. This is important, not just because he's our example, and certainly is, and we can take a long time talking about how Jesus is an example for us in all of our situations. When we look at his law, we look at his life, we see a wonderful example for our entire lives. But it's important because Jesus never fails, and that means he was qualified to be our Savior. The fact that he never fails, he is the the spotless Lamb of God without any sin. And for those of us, like Paul, who are sinful, this is wonderful news. If you know you're a sinner, you know you've broken the the law of God, then it's nice to know that Jesus said, I came to call the righteous, not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If you know you're sinful, isn't it nice to know that you're the guy that Jesus came for? The good news is when we repent of our sin and we turn to Christ, he forgives. That is who he is. That is why he came. If you are a believer in Christ and you blow it and you feel like you're completely unworthy, then you know what you should know? That you were never worthy. But that Jesus has made you worthy. And you can't do something to undo that. Okay? His death covers all of your sin. When we look through Scripture and we look at the examples of the people that God used, Pastor talked about Samson this morning. I was just thinking, Abraham's a liar David's a murderer and adulterer. Peter's a coward, and he's violent. I mean, he chopped the guy's ear off. You look at the, the list, and, and this, this is often people, and, and it's not like, okay, we can say, okay, he used Paul, that's impressive, but Paul wasn't saved when he was doing those things. A lot of times it's even people that are saved that are failing like this, like David, and, and yet he, he's being forgiven and being used once again. This is good news for us. Jesus is qualified to forgive your sin. And for those of us who are religious, the good news is Jesus died for that sin as well. (laughs) He died for your self-righteousness. And so if you will confess your religion, you'll confess the fact that you think that it's your religion that's getting you to heaven, he'll forgive that sin too. Because it can't. Jesus never fails. We all do. And that is good news. When anyone comes to Christ, they must first be broken, helpless, and dirty. And they must know it. And when you come to Christ, you know that. And the wonderful thing is, Jesus changes us. He gives us a new heart. He gives us his righteousness. But we've got to understand that when he does that, that doesn't mean we have anything to boast about. Because it is all his. And so we all fail. Jesus never does. But when we fail, point number three, when we fail... We should respond well. When we fail, we should respond well. And we look at this story, and we look at Paul, and I think he provides a wonderful Christian response to his sin. He, he, he sins, a moment of anger, he could have continued, he could have just gone off on the high priest, and it seems like Paul had a pretty quick tongue, right? He, he was a quick-witted guy. I mean, he knew what to say. I would have like been sitting there like, I want to say something to get you, but I don't know what to say, um... Mom, do you know any comebacks? Like, that, that's how I would be thinking. He's quick. You whited wall. God is going to smite you. How can you possibly judge me when you're breaking the law yourself? He's quick. Kim Dress was really quick. Okay? And if she wanted to, she could tear everybody apart. If you've ever had a conversation, she's got... It's, it's true. She's got a quick, quick tongue and quick wit. Okay? That's, it, it's good. But here's the thing. He didn't. He responded well. So he messes up. He says, listen, I understand. You're right. I might have not known that he was a high priest, and maybe I did know. But either way, 
the Bible does say I shouldn't have responded that way. And Ananias was a dirtbag. I mean, he, Josephus, a Jewish historian, writes about Ananias. And, and, and he says that he was a guy who um, beat up priests, stole their money. He was all about uh, uh, trying to gather wealth for himself. He was actually at one point taken to Rome to court. And when they didn't find him guilty, he came back and he was just killed by another Jew who hated him that much. So Ananias was not a good high priest. But he had been given a God-given position of authority. And Paul recognized that. And Paul says, listen, I don't like who he is, and I don't have respect for the, the person as a man, but I do have respect for that position. And this is, I think, good for us to know as well. We might not like a lot of the things that our government does. We might not like some of the things that the higher power, some of the laws that we have in this land. I've got to tell you, there, there are some laws that make your stomach turn. We have murder legalized in Canada. I mean, we ought to try, be trying to do things for this because it's a great way to help, right? Um, but the Bible says that there are positions of authority that, that believers ought to follow. And so Paul sees what he did, did, even though this guy deserved it. He says, listen, I, I sinned against God. This was in the Bible. I recognize my sin and I repent of it. Paul responded well. 1 John 1.9 pastor quoted it this morning and uh, I already had it in my notes so I'll quote it again if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness our God is faithful and just to... that's amazing it's amazing that after all that we know as Christians and all that we know about God and the fact that we still sin against him that every day his mercies are new, that every time we come to him and confess our sins. And so when we sin, why not take advantage of the wonderful God we have that is faithful and just forgives our sins? Because if what you do instead of confessing your sins is try and cover them up, you're a hypocrite and you're just, you're just piling on your sin and you're separating yourself further and further from your loving God. So when we do sin, respond well. I gotta say, when I read the story, it's encouraging. I, I do. I love the story because I love that we see some some holes in the armor of Paul. He isn't perfect, okay? And it reminds us that we all fail. It did, in this case, ruin his opportunity to preach the gospel. I, I believe that he kind of resorted to what he did in in verse six, where he threw the grenade and, and got them angry. I think he did that because he had already messed up his testimony there. I, thought, I think at that point he knew there was no way he was going to be able to say anything. And so I think he failed here. But what do we do when our heroes fail? Paul's our hero. He fails. We remind ourselves that if they're humans, they're sinners, and we all fail. We remember that there is one who never fails. He is our perfect example, and because he never fails, he is our Savior. And when we fail, we respond well. Confess our sin, seek forgiveness, and do our best to go and sin no more. Let's pray.